You are listening to the Hematology Podcast by Sanofi. Acute myeloid leukemia, AML, is a hematopoietic stem cell-derived myeloid malignancy characterized by manifold genetic aberrations and poor overall survival. Standard treatment for newly diagnosed fit AML patients is intensive chemotherapy. Relapse is, however, a challenge in more than 40% of AML patients. AML is also a disease with a large degree of individual heterogeneity, which creates challenges both for diagnostics and for developing targeted treatment options. Our guest today is Björn Jatschen, Professor of Hematology at the University of Bergen, Norway. Björn is also part of Center for Cancer Biomarkers and founding member and chair of the Nordic AML Group. He's also a member of Hoven AML International Steering Group. He has extensive experience in treating AML and in clinical and translational research of AML, including very exciting newly published data on how single cell signaling profiling may help to detect responders and non-responders early in the treatment. In this episode of our hematology podcast, Bjorn will enlighten us on AML from basics to the current challenges and future perspectives. This is the Hematology Podcast, and I am Mats Merup. Hello, Bjorn. Good to have this talk with you. Yeah, hello. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me here. I was thinking during our lifetime, it's been quite a fantastic development of AML. When we were both born, I would guess that one can say that AML was almost untreatable and definitely uncurable disease. And now we at least managed to cure quite a number of patients. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I, I do. It, it's been a fantastic development. Could we start out by, if you want to say something about which patients are affected, about epidemiology, and what do we know about risk factors for AML? Yes, uh, acute myeloid leukemia is the most frequent aggressive blood cancer in adults, and the median age is, uh, is about 70 years. There is somewhat more males than females that get acute myeloukemia. And we think that about 10%, maybe slightly more, is actually genetically caused or, or there is a genetic risk background that is, uh, is important. The etiology has been difficult to grasp in a way. There is reports that uh, environmental exposure can, can increase the risk. The most relevant observation for us is uh, benzene, hydrocarbon pollution. That seems to increase for those who are exposed maybe up to three times uh, relative risk for acute myeloid leukemia. So yes, uh, th there is something, but in most cases we, we have no clue why it uh, emerged. We shouldn't talk too much about symptoms, but we all know that these patients usually very rapidly get very sick. Could you just say a few things about the typical symptoms of AML? Yeah, as you point out, there is no specific symptoms that is typical for acute myeloid leukemia. It is more the effect of, of bone marrow failure, anemia, an infection that doesn't uh, is under control. So, so you can say that 
a fraction of the patients, they come in without symptoms. It's just a routine test that have been taken or a test that have been taken because they believe they had a, a virus infection or something like that. And then, of course, there is a number of patients that are very sick when they come in with, with severe infections uh, and where the leukemia is substantial. This is a quite bulky tumor. We don't think about it like that. But, you know, if the cell numbers are increasing and there is uh, stuffed with the tumor cells in the bone marrow and eventually in the spleen, then this is actually uh, one of the largest cancers that we 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 have so yes it's a it's a tough job to treat it but as you say the results are are really improved even if we have a way to go maybe i also can indicate a little bit about what we know about the incidence of acute myeloid leukemia so overall it's supposed to be a relatively rare disease with four per hundred thousand per year that that get acute myeloid leukemia. But but if you go up in the age groups where the most patients are above 70 years of age, then the incident is much higher. It's it's 17 per hundred thousand. So we think that acute myeloid leukemia is going to be a more frequent disease with increasing age in the population. The first thing to do when one gets a patient is to get a correct diagnosis. And the basis for this has, through the years, been the bone marrow smears that we still use. But we also have a number of other techniques, cytochemistry, immunophenotyping, genetics. Could you mention a little bit what's happening here? What is new? What is the future? Yes, the diagnostics of acute myeloid leukemia the last 20 years have been more and more oriented towards genetics. And this is reflected in the risk classifications that we use for the patients and so on. And also, of course, in search for, for, for targeted therapies and so on. But basically, as you say, uh, if we suspect uh, an acute leukemia, then we need to have blood and bone marrow and particularly bone marrow. And the morphology is definitively still a very important part. Then we would like to tell apart acute myeloleukemia from acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And of course, we can use special staining, but uh, flow cytometry with immune phenotyping is definitively uh, the, the test of choice here for telling that apart. And then at the same time, we collect samples for genetic profiling of the patients. And in the recent years, there, there have been and this is quite well reflected in the guidelines that we have in the, in the different countries now. There is a timeline when we would like to see the genetic diagnostics appear. So within the first few days, in some cases, uh, for, for some specific leukemias, but, but at least within a week for understanding some of the most common translocations and mutations. I guess we'll come back to the genetics later, but I guess it's both important for diagnostics and for saying a little bit about prognosis and treatment. Yes, uh, also the mutations are, uh, are typical for myeloid blood cancers. So you, you'll find, and some of them are very specific for acute uh, myeloid leukemia. And, and now also, in some cases, in the, in the more revised versions of of classification of acute leukemia, then then you can you can actually use some of the very specific translocations in diagnosis of of uh, AML. But I think most of us would like to have a couple of diagnostic tests before we 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 end with the diagnosis. Yeah. Then, when we have the diagnosis, we have to choose the treatment for the patient, and then of course the challenge is to really understand what the patient will handle and what treatment would be the best. And I think I think this is truly a challenge. And we have to evaluate the fitness of the patients. 
how can we do that and and how do we define fitness yes a lot have been said about determining fitness and of course uh, the more formal way to go is to use uh, fitness scales and, and performance scales of course to, to understand the fitness of the patient the reason for, for this importance is that the, the classical treatment of acute leukemia is to choose between intensive chemotherapy which is what we define as a potential curative treatment and less intensive uh, treatment in acute myeloid leukemia. Fortunately, uh, or unfortunately, it depends on the lines between these two treatments are, are starting getting a little bit blurred. But anyway, we need to understand the fitness of the patient. So typically, when we have a patient that are admitted to hospital for acute leukemia, if we have time, we would like to know the cardiac status, uh, and we would also like to know more about the respiratory function of the patient before we start the treatment. That gives a good indication. And in, in addition, we can use a comorbidity index to get a, a rating of the patient and, and use these composite data, uh, put them together, uh, discuss them in the team of hematologists and then and uh, with a, a conclusion of, of intensity treatment. And then we have to start the treatment. And for the fit patient, is there today a standard of treatment or is there a basis that is part of the treatment today? What do we, what standards do we have here? Can you say something on this? Yeah, this is interesting. Also, if you look at it from above, then you can say that there is a standard induction treatment, intensive chemotherapy, which include anthracycline, donorubicin or idorubicin, and uh, um, a medium concentration of cytarabine. So that's the induction treatment. But if you start looking closer into this, you'll see that these induction treatments, they are a little bit different in the different countries. And there is also a more combined regime that has uh, catched interest uh, and, and enthusiasm. Induction treatment, intensive chemo, yes, but the, the exact details of the treatment and the number of days, five days, seven days, the level of cytarabine, that's a little bit different in the, in the different countries and different regions. Uh, unfortunately, it's not like, like in lymphoma where you have R-CHOP or something like that as, as, a, as a standard of care. It's interesting that in a way, I don't know if you agree, we have sort of been standing at the same point here for many, many times since we started using combination chemotherapy. Yes, and you can say that uh, some of the discussions, they go in circles. For example, when it comes to anthracyclines, what should the level of denrubicin be? How much more toxicity will the patient take? Should we choose denrubicin or should we take idorubicin? That, that's one of the discussions uh, ongoing. And, and I think that um, I don't know if that's really going to bring us much more further. I, I think there there is, uh, we have a couple of well-characterized, well documented regimes. For example, in Norway, we are following the HOVON standard treatment. And, and I think it's more important to have a high quality of the regime that you choose and, and know how to, to handle it and handle the adverse events. Because the, the consolidation treatment is maybe some of the, and maintenance treatment maybe also in the future, is maybe some of the, the very important cards that we need to concentrate on. One of the major advances has been the use of stem cell transplants here. And uh, I think that has changed the prognosis tremendously for many patients. How do you look at this? We, we know now that we don't need to transplant all patients. 
but uh, some patients do surely much better with a transplant. And we can also transplant more patients now. What is happening here and what will the future be, do you think? I, th- I think actually there have been a quite th- dramatic change in the way we think about the transplants and the way we connect the genetic diagnostics to the choice of transplants. So, so you can say, yes, uh, the genetic risk certification, that's one thing that guides us uh, to, to, to select consolidation by, by transplant. Uh, so the intermediate risk patients and uh, the adverse risk patients based on cytogenetics and mutational profiles, those patients are quite obvious candidates for allogeneic stem cell transplantation. But what's also emerging, uh, and, and, and you can say that this is something that has progressed much faster and further in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but what, what's now catching up is the use of minimal residual disease after the induction treatment or eventually after the two first courses of, of intensive chemotherapy. So that means, means that if you have an intermediate risk patient based on, on genetics, we use minimal residual disease estimates by flow cytometry or by quantitative PCR or, or genetics to tell if this is a residual disease positive patient or not. And if the, the patient is residual disease positive, then we will like to transplant the patient also when it's an intermediate risk patient. But, but there is one particular case that I would like to tell you about, about the FLT3 mutated AML patients. Around 2000, uh, I, I think the first paper and report was in 97. It was reported that in children with acute myeloid leukemia, FLT3 mutations, a particular membranous uh, internal tandem duplication or length mutation, that was a diverse uh, genetic risk factor. And, and this also emerged in adult uh, leukemia. So in adult patients, that's regarded uh, as a adverse risk, at least intermediate risk, to have this particular mutation. It's, it's a quite frequent mutation. 30% have this mutation. So what happened was that, of course, we as clinicians, we pushed these patients over to transplant as soon as possible. So basically, the prognostic impact of this mutation has decreased the closer you come up to present time. If you go back and look for 20 years ago, this was a quite significant uh, pronostic marker, but now it's basically removed. It doesn't have impact on, on the survival because we are pushing these patients into transplant. So transplant has had a, a quite revolutionary role there. In addition, we have got targeted therapies against FLT3-mutated AML, but they first emerged around 2019. So we have not seen the full impact of them yet. Now, we have mainly talked about allogeneic transplant, and we have also used autologous transplant in AML. Is there a role today for autologous transplant in AML? Would you say that? Uh, that that's a very interesting question. So, in the Hoven, uh, there is a few environments in Europe that have that, that are uh, insisting using autologous stem cell transplants, and the Hoven network is one of those. And the results are intriguing. This is particularly in the intermediate risk group. If, if you have a patient of intermediate risk with no residual disease, then we choose uh, autologous uh, transplants. And we also do that in, in good risk uh, patients. That means that we have less adverse events and, and the survival data is very good. But I think this discussion will, will continue because the logistics around the allogeneic stem cell transplant is quite challenging. So you need to have a very well-trimmed cell therapy program to, to make this happen. 
So I don't think the final word is said uh, about that, but but it's uh, very effective, yes. That brings us to our next question. I mean, when we have a patient that would benefit from a transplant, but, but that we feel cannot handle a transplant, what are the options for such a patient? First of all, we would like to challenge, is it really possible to transplant a patient, even if it's an older patient with comorbidity? And when we've gone maybe a couple of rounds there and and then figured out that this is not the right way to do, then it is uh, consolidation therapy and maintenance therapy that will emerge as as options. There's a limited number of maintenance therapies uh, um, approved, actually. Of course, for targeted therapies, it's easier. Patient with FLD3 mutation, we would maybe treat with FLD3 inhibitor for a couple of years, two years after, after we have completed the intensive chemo regime. For other patients, we, we have actually a, a Nordic alternative. There's a Swedish product developed. Uh, it's histamine with a low-dose interleukin-2, which is quite intriguing and has a very nice phase three trial from 2006. So that's a possible maintenance therapy. And then you also have uh, hypermethylating agents that, that are indicated can be used. But there is new drugs coming up. Peroral hypermethylating agents is a candidate for maintenance therapy. Yes, so uh, so there is a couple of possibilities that can be followed. Um, so maintenance could be a chance for those patients that cannot do a transplant, but maintenance has been used for many patients during the years. And is this something, could you define what is maintenance? And uh, is this something that is, do you think, coming back more? When I'm thinking about maintenance therapy, I'm thinking about the successful treatment of acute promolyceptic leukemia, and I'm thinking about the long treatment program that we follow in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And I believe actually that AML will, at least in some patients, we will follow exactly the same way of thinking uh, two years uh, after after we have started uh, under the the intensive chemo uh, regime. So for me, this is a peroral drug that we take daily or, or nearly daily. Out there, there is different regimes that can be used, and we have more anecdotal reports about patients that have been treated with sigmacoptopurine and and maybe a weekly dose of the new BCL2 inhibitors, for example. So I think actually there is a, a lot of possibilities that maybe have to be developed further. So yes, so 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 that's my my understanding that we are. It's an unmet need actually to develop uh, maintenance therapy and to establish that in AML. Now that's maybe a way forward. You also mentioned MRD, which can be used. Can we uh, follow MRD in all patients, and 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 when should we do it, and how can we we use it? I think that most close to all patients can be followed if you can choose between genetic markers and uh, flow cytometry. So at least 80%, I think, can be, be you can establish an immune phenotype that you can use for repeated flow cytometry uh, determination of measurable residual disease. But what's coming up is, of course, uh, the quantitative PCR techniques that are, are quite powerful and very sensitive. So if you have markers that, uh, that are relatively stable, like MPN1, 
um, eventually IDH1 and 2. You can follow them with uh, digital droplet PCR. Uh, I, th- I think that one of the regimes that will be used in the future is to follow the patients, for example, every third month with a bone marrow for two years, something like that. At the same time, MRD uh, evaluation by peripheral blood is going to emerge. There is some data that indicate that, for example, MPM1 measured in peripheral blood is just as prognostic and just as sturdy and, and solid as, as bone marrow. But we, we, we think yeah, that, at least today, that uh, that a bone marrow sample is the most important. In some diseases, for example, in core binding acute myeloid leukemia, uh, you might have this signal of um, measurable residual disease without actually meaning that we have to, to action. What we have to action on is actually the increase of the measurable residual disease. But this is described now better and better in the guidelines that we use. So, so we know today quite well when to act on increasing MRD and, and we can use that as an indication of emerging relapse. Yeah, I think so that the most of us, if there, there is a positivity or a signal that seems to increase from the last sample, then we quite rapidly take a new bone marrow. And if there is a more than one logarithm, uh, ten, more than 10 times increase in signal, then we should really consider a kind of therapeutic uh, measure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we mentioned that AML is a very heterogeneous disease, both maybe between patients, but also within patients. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah definitely. As I, I, I think that for most doctors that have seen these patients over some years, they, they, they of course, they, they acknowledge that every patient is, is different and the sensitivity level and, and the toxicity profile and all that stuff. But, but if you start looking in, to the leukemia, then you, you will also see that, okay, there is recurrent mutations, there is recurrent translocations, but still the composition of the different molecular markers and, the, and molecular features of the disease is different from patient to patient. I, I think some of the most important observation that I was made aware about was the, the fact that you have uh, in most patients several clones of the disease. We are hunting for monoclonal presence of, of blasts, but actually they are oligoclonal in, in many of the cases. Uh, and also uh, we have to acknowledge that the techniques that we, we have available, they are not necessarily able to give us a full picture of the clonal landscape of that particular patient. So, so, so that's also something that we need to respect. And we'll probably learn much more here in the future with new techniques and even more genetics. In your very recent article published in Nature Communications, you showed how early response evaluation could be used as a predictor of long-term therapy response. This is very interesting findings. Could you tell us about the study and, and how you, what you found and, and how this can be used? Thank you very much for, for asking about that. You can say that now we are, we have to, to think that we are standing on the shoulders of the genetics, of the genetic diagnostics, basically. And then we, we need to think about, will the genetics be able to tell us everything? Will we have a complete understanding how, of how this patient is going to, 
to to respond. And the the more we think about more sensitive techniques, the more difficult the clonality of that particular patient might might be. Therefore, what we tried to do was to change gear in a way. Okay, we stand on the shoulders of uh, genetic profiling and uh, genetic risk stratification of the disease, but then we take the patient treat the patients, and then we sample the patients' leukemic cells and follow them uh, within a few hours or a few days after start of, of therapy. So basically, we ask the disease itself to tell us, is the disease responding to the intensive chemotherapy or, or not? And when we do this in a limited but quite well-curated, well-selected selection of patients, all of them intensive chemotherapy, most of them treated within a HOVON trial, then we see that using a protein detection technique, single cell-based uh, flow cytometry-like technique that is called mass cytometry, then we see that within 24 hours, there is sentinel cells in the patient's, patient's leukemia that tell us that this disease is responding, this disease is not responding the way it should. So that's amazing. So that can then, how do you see the future for this? How, how, how? A, a key word for the future is functional diagnostics. Most of us know that there have been functional tests in hematology in many, many years, but fortunately they are, they are lost. Many of them are, are gone in a way, uh, for the, for different diseases. It's, it's a, it's heavy work to, to do it, take a long time and, and we trust genetics. But here it's about the functional response in the patient and, we have also looked into chronic myeloid leukemia, where we see something similar with the targeted monotherapy, as we use there. Uh, and now, as you say, we have shown this and, and published this in acute myeloid leukemia. So, so we think that this monitoring of single cells by using, uh, looking at proteins and protein modifications, protein phosphorylation of, of ERK, uh, a very important signal enzyme in, in cell death regulation. You have a candidate for a future functional test that could be possible to put into a clinical diagnostic format. So it can be also be used both for diagnostics and, as you said in your study, evidence for response. Yeah. Then you can you, you can foresee that you you have a patient that have a high level of of the signaling pathway of ERK, for example, and driving a high BCL2 family signal. Then you would maybe like to add on an ERK pathway inhibitor uh, on top of that therapy. That's what we would like to see if we can follow and develop. And I think also that on, on the on the most recent. Uh, hematology meeting in in US, this was also one of the key findings or or key abstracts selected. It was actually the ERK pathway uh, and targeting that ERK pathway to enhance the therapy. So there is something else that can be be followed up. Very interesting. What else do you think is new and under an investigation in AML? What will we see in the next few years? Well, one one of the difficult patients to treat is uh, P53 mutated AML. I, we, we share that in the entire hematological malignancy group in a way. I think it, it, it's also devastating in lymphoma. But in AML, uh, a P53 mutation, uh, which is all, often found together with uh, with complex karyotype, that's an indication that this patient will not benefit intensive chemotherapy. And there's also been a discussion around the benefit of transplant, but maybe transplant is the best still. So how should we deal with these patients? And and currently, so it's more than 50 years since the discovery of P53. We don't have a useful P53 targeting therapy 
actually. So there is some, some new emerging suggestions that pathways around P53, MIC, for example, C-MIC can be upregulated by in, in these diseases. And maybe targeting MIC, which is definitively possible to do, can be a way to, to move forward. So I think that that's going to be one example. Another group of, of diseases, uh, a problem that we share with children's leukemia is the MLL translocated, also KMP2A rearranged leukemias. There is a new group of drugs called the menin inhibitors, menin inhibitors, and, and they are going to be put into phase three trials uh, quite fast. And I think that's going to be, be an interesting thing. But still, the discussion about the backbone is going to, I think that's going to be a discussion that's going to haunt us for a couple of years uh, still. You maybe know that there is a recent paper by a Dutch-German group of, of, of scientists, uh, Lübbart is the first author, where they indicate that 10 days with hypermethylating agent uh, is just as good as uh, induction therapy in older patients. And, and of course, that in a way means that the backbone will maybe have to change as well, giving us ability and a, and a room for more toxicity using targeted therapies. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. You seem to be a true collaborator. You have uh, created and, and you, you're sharing the, the Nordic AML group. I remember in Sweden when we had lots of different groups a long time ago and, and we couldn't collaborate together. And we also now have a European collaboration with the Hovon. How do you look at this? Is this crucial for us to get forward? Yeah, basically... There is a, uh, a number of research environments in the Nordics that are quite advanced when it comes to AML. You find it in Helsinki, in Stockholm, in Uppsala, Copenhagen, uh, also on the, on the, on the west coast of, of Sweden. And we have it in Norway as well. How to put this into a kind of, uh, of uh, system in a way where we can get synergies? That, that's, that's one uh, important uh, thing. And we have similarities between our countries that are perfect for comparison. So, so I think that it's been a pleasure to be part of the, the founders for the Nordic AMA group. Uh, and we have already learned a lot from each other, I think. We had a meeting in August in 2023 in Bergen. That was the first physical meeting. And, and that was a very good environment where, where I think that we can set up new collaborations. And that means also that Nordic uh, as a as a group, can be more equal in collaboration with with uh, other consortias, both uh, German and Dutch and, and UK groups working on AML. So, so I think there's many dimensions in having such a, a network. Basically, I think actually it improves the, the, the care of AML patients. At least it have done that in, in, in Norway, to talk for my own country. I think you're very right here. Bjorn, thank you so much for this fantastic talk. You have an immense knowledge, but you also can share your knowledge in a very clear way, I think. I think we picked on very interesting points and some very new, interesting aspects, intriguing aspects for the future. Thank you for joining me and sharing your knowledge. Thank you very much for the discussion. You have just listened to the Hematology Podcast by Sanofi. 